Hello and welcome to the Regenerating Nature podcast. This is our first episode. It's mostly an intro to what we're going to be talking about and what we're trying to accomplish with this podcast, but we do go into a little bit more depth on some of the issues that we're facing um, in terms of the future of our society and land management and everything that goes along with it, uh, food security and how the normal homeowner, everybody is involved in the system and how everyone plays a part in the system, not just the people that own the land and are doing the work. There are a couple little audio glitches that happened along the way. If you are listening to this on an audio only platform, just want to make you aware that this video will also be uploaded to YouTube. Uh, there won't be a ton of extra footage or graphics in this particular episode, but we do record this live and dump it on YouTube if, if that's more of your thing. And in the future, uh, when we're telling stories or showing graphs or talking about stuff, I, I will bring those up and patch those into the video just for reference. So thanks again for listening. And uh, if you enjoy this show, please go ahead and like it, subscribe, subscribe on whatever platform that lets us know that you're interested in hearing more from us. So thank you again and enjoy. All right. You ready to roll? Yeah. All right. Welcome to the regenerating nature podcast. This is our, our uh, first official episode. So this is going to have the long intro to kind of explain what we're all about uh, and what our intentions of this podcast are. And then we're going to get right into it. Uh, so I promise that I won't uh, bore you or take up any more of your time than I have to in additional episodes with this intro. But since we're here, uh, we are the Regenerating Nature podcast where we research, discuss, and employ sustainable ways for humans to promote and protect nature. Why is that so important, you might ask? Because, simply put, we are a part of nature. Our personal health and happiness, along with the future of our planet, are 100% dependent on nature and all that it provides. And the further that we drift from our connection with nature, the worse off our society becomes. So we're here today to help inspire thoughts and actions that make a real difference. I'm your host, Thomas Milsna, father, husband, provider. Uh, my background is in wildlife biology and natural resources, agricultural production, and land use. And I've worked in the outdoor industry for over 12 years. I am the CEO and owner of the Untamed Ambition, a habitat development company that offers consulting and project management to a variety of walks of life. Uh, anyone looking to improve natural habitat, natural ecosystems, and manage them at a productive level. Producing sustainable wildlife habitat, unforgettable recreational experiences, diversified income, and food security all at the same time. And I am joined by my co-host, Taylor Henry, a regenerative farmer and realtor with the Compass Realty Group. So Taylor, why don't you uh, go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself? Great intro. Happy to be here. 
Yes, I'm Taylor Henry. I'm from uh, southwest Southwest Wisconsin, Viroqua, Wisconsin. Um, I've had a lifelong obsession with land, and that's pretty much come from being a city boy. I was raised in the city, but always longed to own land and have land. Um, so yeah, I've I've acquired uh, recreational and farmland. It's about a sixty acre regenerative uh, operation that we farm cattle. Uh, hogs and chickens um it's also home to airbnbs and it's you know considered an experimental farm that marries new age agriculture and blossoming recreational land that is also home to giant bucks um <laughs> i've been mentored by mark shepherd who's the ceo of uh, forest ag enterprises and the founder of restoration agricultural development he's the author of restoration agricultural a uh, real world permaculture for farmers. Um, he's also known for his new forest farm and it's a 106 acre perennial agricultural savanna located outside of Vi Viola. Um, I'm also passionate about business and farming along with hunting. Um, and I have started a, a real estate um, practice that specializes in working with hunters and farmers. Um, and that has grown a lot in the last year or two years with with the amount of um, acreage that has been being sold and that's kind of the purpose why i'm here i want to help more people acquire land um, to start their journey with land ownership but i also love to help the people who are either investing trading up to buy more land um, and selling their current existing piece um, or selling century type farms that have been the family forever and making sure that those go to a person that's going to respect them and treat them well. And that's, uh, that's really why I wanted to start this podcast with Taylor uh, to begin with. I, I mean, I feel like we are both in a very similar place in life. I mean, not down to the dirty details, but, you know, mindset wise, we're in a similar place in life, both starting, young families or raising young families, I should say. But I, I truly believe that we are facing some significant issues uh, right now in our country and in this world. And it's up to us to change those things. And the power, the power is with the people and how they spend their money. And when you spend your money on land and invest in land, you have a, a significant impact because you have more control, right? And that impact can be negative. It can be positive, but when you own that land, now you have options to manage that land and earn an income off that land or, or earn an income off that land, I should say, because you don't always have to buy land for that purpose, but having the land is key. This, this whole podcast isn't going to revolve around purchasing land or, or owning land by any means, but I think it's it's a goal that we as Americans should all chase at some point in our life uh, because despite the fact that we're in a country that is labeled free, we're not truly free until we own land and produce our own food on that land for our families. At that point, then you have a lot more freedom, right? But inevitably if you're dependent on someone else to have, 
supply you with with your source of nutrition. You know, if you're outsourcing where your actual food comes from, then you are always going to be a slave to that system. And and that's really what I want to talk about in this podcast because food is such an important factor. It is, you know, it's one of the most important things in our lives. And where does that food come from? That food inevitably comes from nature. And at the rate that we are destroying and removing nature from our lives, from the world around us, eventually it's going to be gone. And then we're going to be 100% dependent on a humanized, mechanized, unnatural system for our food. And that, you know, not to, not to jump right into the dark side, but, you know, that would be a, a new form of slavery or a form of slavery. You know what I'm saying? So that's, you know, that's something I think everybody should be aware of at all times. Uh, but from my perspective, I want to save nature far and beyond just, you know, the things that we get out of nature because nature itself I mean, obviously, we are a part of nature. If it wasn't for nature, we would have not evolved to this point. We have not would not have had the opportunities that we've had up until this point. But we need to ensure that we're not hitting this threshold or turning around, looking back, and just you know running away with things because it will not end well, not at all. But that's why I brought Taylor aboard. Uh, he's he's went through the purchasing process. He understands the business side of owning land and getting it to pay for itself. And, you know, that's a lot of what I do with, with clients as well as you're, you know, you're always trying to find ways to get that land to pay for itself. I, I primarily do it because I want to make sure that that wildlife habitat is productive at that level that it can pay for itself so that there's not an option or, or a reason to remove it. Right. If it pays, it stays. So if it's productive, and there's there's no threat, you know, it's self-sustaining on the financial side of things, uh, then there's a lot better chance that that wildlife habitat's going to be protected for for many generations and doesn't just succumb to that, oh, corn's up this year, let's clear that spot and plant a couple extra acres mindset, right? So with that being said, I know that was kind of a long-winded intro, <laughs> but uh that's that's kind of a nutshell in a nutshell what this podcast is all about uh you know we are constantly looking at ways to basically get more land get more nature protect more nature you know my side of things is i'm not specifically you know targeting people that are buying land or selling land like like taylor's side of things but i'm working with people that are you know they have a stake in land they're, they're more connected to it. But my argument would be, again, that, that we all need to be more connected to it and you don't necessarily have to own land, but owning land gives you more control or more influence, I should say, right? On the, on the outcome of that property, of that land. So it's a, owning land is a, it's a much greater responsibility than, than I think a lot of people realize, right? What's your take on that, Taylor? Yeah, I mean, I would agree. I, I think um, so. Here's here's the issue with land, and I think people in our generation or people our age have a hard time wrapping their mind around buying it um, because it's not a, a physical, tangible asset like a house. Uh, 
and then for whatever reason we are we are very into putting money into retirement funds roth iras uh investment accounts and land is does not perform the same way as like commercial buildings do or apartments and rentals where it's it automatically has this kind of cash flow basis in it um but i like to th- put in people's minds to treat land similar to how you would treat a piggy bank or your retirement account or your investment accounts. Um, if you have extra money away monthly into an investment account, but then in the same token, say that I cannot afford land. Um, you can, it's just, you're not looking at it exactly the way that you look at that investment account, which you have no control over. You have no control over increasing the value of that property or increasing the value of that investment. You have no control over what the market's going to do to it. At least with land, sure, you could say I don't have control over the value of it and what the market's going to do in some ways. Uh, But land has consistently held its value and increased its value um, more than almost any asset in the financial sector. You do have <clears throat> the beauty of real estate is the the ability to value add and to increase the value of, of a property by you putting work into it or you putting your imagination into it um, while land being, you know, the best hedge against inflation, which where we are right now is, I mean, we're dead in the center of, you know, big time inflation and recession. Um, land has been that hedge against that for year forever. Yeah. Um I, I thought we were in one of the best economies we've ever had. Jobs are up, gas prices are down. I keep hearing it. Yeah. But so the so I, th- I think that's because when I first got started, I wanted to say I I want to figure out a way to cash flow land, make essentially cattle and the activities on the land operate in the same way that you would have tenants in an apartment building. Um, I don't think it's that simple for everybody. I think pe- if people look at the land portion as the investment account and then the buildings and the activities that you do on the land, similar to what could possibly make you the return and make you the, the cash flow, um, That's probably the best way to look at it. Cause most likely people aren't going to start a big cattle farm. Like I have where year, you know, we're getting into year three and it's finally is profitable, but it's not a cheap thing to get into either. Correct. And, and there's a lot of people out there that, you know, they don't have the time to invest in that, obviously, right? You know, if yeah, if and we can if, if you're gonna become a farmer, you I mean that's a that's a full-time job, right? So you can't it's very hard to be a part-time farmer. You know, I guess you could call yourself a hobby farmer if you're raising this or that here or there, but you know, a full-time farmer managing the well, logistics involved with I don't know. Yeah. I don't I don't know. I, I think the way the farming that I do is it's not full. I mean, I, my full-time job is, is a realtor and um, I would say managing the houses. And yeah. The yeah, yeah. No, no, I understand that. I, I mean, <clears throat> I, let me back up and clarify, you know, you're not going to buy a bunch of cattle and raise them in a way that's beneficial to all parties, right? Healthiest way, best on the, on the, ground on the land management wise, you know, improving the land instead of just taking from the land and doing it profitably, right? You're not going to operate even a small cattle operation without investing some time into it. 
uh, the reason I well, want to bring and that you're up is, not gonna you're not you're gonna have a hard time wedging in your cost of living in there. Correct, correct. But it all comes down to time, right? It's like life is all about how we manage and where we put our time. And obviously, with what you're doing, there's once you have things established and you have a routine and you get things figured out, and you know you're incorporating some newer technologies, you know, in the form of automating your pasture systems a little bit. You know, you still have to be there, be invested, check in on those cattle. But you know, no, it's. I shouldn't have said that it was a full-time job, but it's more than just, Hey, I'm going to dump these cattle in this pasture at the beginning of the summer. I'm going to pull them from the pasture at the end of the summer. I'm going to bring them home and feed them a bale of hay once a week throughout the winter. Right. So I just, that's why I wanted to clarify. And again, that is a lot of people do that. And, and that's not always the most beneficial thing, right? I mean, you're still raising high quality animals, but it's not, the best for the land, you know, that would be the, the biggest determining factor, but we'll, we'll get into that another time. Um, you know, again, we're, we're going to discuss all sorts of topics and pull in some guests. I've got uh, a list of some people that I have reached out to. I've got a list of people that I will be reaching out to. And I know Taylor does as well. So, I mean, my goal with this podcast is to bring up topics, discuss topics, things that are on our minds, things that we're doing to overcome certain obstacles in our lives, you know, as we are going, you know, through our own journeys and, and hopefully share that, you know, with you, the audience in a way that again, either helps you or inspires you or gets you thinking about some of these things and, and why we're doing them. And, you know, both of us are doing the things that we're doing. You know, I guess I don't want to speak for both of us, but you know, myself personally, I'm doing the things that I'm doing because it's very important to me that my kids and then the next generation has as good or better opportunities in life that than we had. But the way things have changed so much in the last few years has really been an eye opener. And I know myself personally, I've started to look back through a lot of other things throughout history, uh, you know, not just specifically politics or anything along those lines, but just how we as humans have changed, altered nature, removed nature, you know, interacted with nature throughout history and essentially how that interaction has had, has had consequences, right? And things are not looking very good, the path that we're going. And I just, you know, if anything, i like to get more people to be more aware of where their food comes from and where their food's going. If more people are not aware <clears throat> of these situations. So, you know, that's really what we want to talk about, but all of these things, you know, the way land is managed with cattle, the way food is produced, the way hunting properties are managed for hunting, all of these things. You know, I, and also, you know, I, I don't want to, exclude or rule out the people that don't own a a property. Again, you don't have to be a landowner. Uh, If you own any land at all, it could be a quarter acre yard or less. Maybe you own it or you have an apartment, but you have a balcony or rooftop access. I mean, there's always things that we can do to be better about what's going on uh, with our environment. And most of that comes down to your consumption, right? There's a, there's a, 
percentage of people in the world that are consumers and consumers only. And there's a percentage of people in the world that are producers, but all producers are going to be consumers to some level, right? They might be consuming all of what they produce, but they're still consumers. But consumers have that control because they're the ones funding the producers. So wherever you're spending your money is, you know, going to promote one thing or another. So if you're spending your money on food that's produced in a way that is good for the land, then that's going to promote that way of life, that way of food production, which is inevitably going to be good for the land. If you're spending your money with food that is produced in a way that is not good for the land, then you're promoting a way of life, a mindset, a procedure, a routine that is ultimately damaging or destroying the land, right? So that's, you know, that that's really the biggest thing. I mean, if, if, if everyone in the world understood that, plain and simple, the world would be a much better place. <laughs> so how do we get there, right? Tell me, Taylor, you have the answers. How do we get there? Yeah, I mean, it's it's starting the conversation and just in education. I, I mean, I didn't know much better. I didn't know really any better um, before I dove into um, the reason I got into regenerative agriculture is because I knew I wanted to own land because I loved hunting and I wanted to, it really just came from me being a control freak, not being able to stand, um, not having control over the property I was hunting and just the, the, you know, every normal story you'd ever hear about when people are hunting on ask for permission properties. Um, but it, when you start getting into like soil health and what is happening with our ground, it kind of comes down to the five basic principles and if these five basic principles were followed um and if they were just common knowledge that they were taught in our schools uh if if this is the information that we were getting when we were in elementary school instead of the food pyramid um our world would be in a lot better place our farmers would be in a lot better place and then um our food would be in a lot better place and in turn we'd be a lot healthier so those those i think i think that you know the the, the principles aside, I think the, the important factor there is that if we were just taught that it starts with the soil to begin with, right? Well, the key thing is education. Yeah. But just we starting- are, We were with, not taught this. Starting with that foundation instead of right. you know, well, you're, the things you're, that are above. You're, you're trained to trust and believe your teachers and your parents and your people that gave you the information your whole entire life. Um, never in in a million years would you conceive the possibility that the information was actually the opposite of correct. I mean, that's what we're talking about. It, it was literally like, look at the old food pyramid, even though they just tried coming out with a updated one that <laughs> kind of mimics that like it, the food pyramid's insane. Yeah. And it's, it, it, I mean, it's the opposite of truth, which is who would have thought that who would have thought that that could be possible when you're well, learning that. And that that's the thing. And you know, that, that is, this is the topic of today's episode, you know, beyond the intro uh, and kind of letting you, the user, excuse me, the, the listener, get a feel for what we're going to be talking about throughout this podcast. The topic of this episode, episode one, is our broken system, right? The system is so broken on every level. And I think, you know, the last couple of years expose that dramatically where 
these bigger players in the game, the, the people with all the money, the people that are moving the bulk of the money around the economy and the world are just blatantly lying about everything to fill up their bank accounts more and more. I mean, we had the biggest shift of wealth wealth in human history ever in the last couple of years. And these people are still pushing the absolute worst practices down our throat. And that's, you know, again, that's, that's why I wanted to do this podcast so that we just had more of an opportunity to talk about some of these things and what we see. I mean, I, I tell people this all the time that I see myself as a frontline conservationist, a frontline environmentalist, right? I'm not out picketing in front of a, a courthouse with a sign complaining about anything. I'm out identifying problems and finding solutions to those problems on a case-by-case basis. And my career, my path has led me down doing that in the natural world, right? Uh, everything that I'm looking at has to do with land and native environments. And that's really where my passion is. But I see all these problems and where they all come from. You know, my, my background is, is pretty diverse as far as the perspectives that I've picked up along the way. And I see all these problems. And then like Taylor said, you see all these lies and the things that they're pushing. And then you start following the money, start tracing that back. What is the root of that problem? Well, it's caused by that. Well, why is it caused by that? Well, it's pushed by this company or it's pushed by that. And it work, you work your way all the way back up. And then on the other side of that, it trickles all the way back down through the education system, through the through academia, through the, the colleges, all the way down to elementary school where they don't teach you anything about managing money. They don't teach you anything about soil health. All they teach you is to recycle your fucking plastic water bottles and that's going to save the world. Or maybe take take a shorter shower. Don't let the water run while you're brushing your teeth and that's what's going to save the world. But they don't ever talk about eating terrible food and you know where that food even comes from. And I think that's just a topic of conversation more and more and more these days, which is good. You know, it's, it's good to see people having those conversations finally. And, and again, I, I think a lot of it was sparked by the last couple of years where you kind of had this tipping point, you know, there, there was always a certain percentage of our population that didn't trust the government and didn't trust big corporations and were anti these things. And, you know, it's, it's funny to me looking back growing up on a a conventional farm, a a dairy farm, the people that were bringing up or addressing those issues, specifically environmental issues, you know, were, were what they were the, they were the dirty hippies. Well, that was that crazy hippie person. Right. And yeah, I mean, Sometimes no, I'm a look dirty hippie. Yeah, well, me too. <laughs> me too. I mean, it's funny. It's just I shouldn't say it's funny. It's it's just ironic. But you know, life I changes, heard. and again, it's it's it's, it's very yeah. interesting. It's just, <clears throat> but at some point, I don't know. I think you get older, and you 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 realize the world is more simple than what it 
you know, it's led on to be. Um, Cause that's what this is. It's like, it, it's not hard. This is very simple, but I think people's energy and focus is only captured in like small little milliseconds. So that's why they tell you like recycle and, and do these things because they can say that in one sentence. Whereas like make the soil healthy. I mean, it's simple, but it's more complex than just throwing away your water bottle. Well, I think you, I think you bring up a good point there where the short attention span, it's also that short. How do I want to say this? It's the uh, delayed gratification or the lack of delayed gratification that we have as a society. Right. And that's, we're obsessed where, with instant gratification. And, and where does that come from? I mean, it's all driven by the consumer industry itself, right? It's like, we want quick and easy food, shitty for us. We want quick and easy information, usually not thorough, sometimes not even true. We want all of the things in our life to either make our life easier or give us more time for what? So we can hurry home, sit our asses down on the sofa and watch TV so every person in our household can can split off to separate quarters with a separate screen and they can do their own thing for however many hours in the evening. You know, we're all so disconnected from everything that's going on, but it's all because we want this instant gratification. I think that's, you know, that's a big issue with land management on every level is people want instant. They want it to look good now. They want it to produce now, you know, what I deal with all the time is you have, there's some pretty, pretty dramatic investment opportunities available if you buy the right property, you know? So if someone is specifically looking for an investment opportunity and, and, you know, weighing out the option of buying land, the right properties, as you know, Taylor is, you know, they, they can produce a significant amount of income mostly through farming, but also recreational opportunities and other things. If, if they're managed correctly, most of the time you're not going to have situations where those things produce in year one, right? Even if you buy land and you enroll the whole thing in CRP where the government's going to pay you to plant grass on your property, you're not eligible that's for that still a, immediately. That's still a year out. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, that's, that's hard. I mean, we're here. We're, 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 there's a reason like the quickest way to make a buck on owning land is renting it out to the current farmer who's probably farming it. Correct. And that's why those things never stop. Correct. But I, I have a solution for that at, I've been employing for a couple of years and it seems to be working well. You know, it, it does come down to getting that property owner, that landowner to take away a little bit of that land from the farmer and, and then we manage that differently. And then that area starts to produce at a higher level where it can overcompensate for the rest of it. And then you start to manage all of it, you know, then it kind of has this cascading effect. Right. But it's all like, and usually I have that conversation with the, with the landowner kind of put things into perspective for them. Like, Hey, you know, are you willing to give up a few acres here or there? You know, how much are you actually getting paid to rent that tillable land to the farmer? hundred dollars an acre maybe $200 an acre. So you can't afford to give up $600 that year on that property. Maybe sometimes, maybe not. Sometimes you can, but it's all again, where are you putting that money? Where are you putting your time? The weirdest thing I see, the biggest thing I've seen is they just don't want to tell 
the farmer like they don't want they they like think that they're being they think uh, they're being like generous rude. to oh yeah no i get i i see that all the time too they don't like want if they're to... if they were to be like like where there's there's this very like simple exchange of you know money where it's like you get this outlined acreage okay and then that person gets to do that and it's like if you just go and take three acres away the majority of people that i tell that to do that to it ends up coming down to the fact they don't want to go have that conversation yeah well that's uh like made like some of the weirder ones i've ever seen is like my grandpa made a deal with the farm 20 (laughs) years ago and there's still like it's crazy. still getting still getting paid the same amount per acre too i i know that's that's exactly it and honestly i it's it's amazing to me how often in my line of work uh, consulting on some of these properties that will be a new idea to someone it's like hey have you ever thought about talking to that guy and taking away some yeah. of that land you, <laughs> you didn't like, sign a, you didn't sign a blood yes. contract when you got it yeah <laughs> So, but, you know, again, short-term versus long-term, you know, if if people have a little bit more delayed gratification, and obviously I understand the financial side of things, but a lot of times if you're willing to, or if you have a better plan going into it, when you buy a property, if you're willing to wait a little while with your management practices, they generally are going to produce at a higher level once they're established. And that's, you know, that's, that's a big case right there with, permaculture right is when you're when you're dealing with like a perennial orchard that once it's established that thing is going to produce in a self-sustaining way for the foreseeable future with little to no inputs and you know if it's managed correctly your management practices can actually pay for themselves i.e cattle i.e having a good plan good timing all those things that, that come into play then your management practices essentially pay for themselves or produce secondary income on that land. You know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of potential there. The biggest, I, the biggest thing, the easiest thing to say for like making money on land, cause there's a way it's just, it's stacking enterprises. That's why the permaculture, the multi-layered, the multi-level type production is so popular um, because you're stacking enterprises on top of each other so like, yeah that that's why it makes perfect sense financially i love the idea because now you have a diverse ecosystem that doesn't require all the chemicals to sustain itself right because now you're working with nature having that balance and you know the, the different what taylor's talking about there with the multi-layer multi-level he's talking about you know basically farming different levels of of solar energy essentially right yeah. i mean your ground comes down you to. know yeah a bare egg field and what people look at as farming they look at that as a two-dimensional object when it doesn't have to be it's not just a flat piece of ground you can build things on top of it that will actually produce um income and I, we do the same thing with cover like you do the same thing with your cover crop blends as well like what is growing straight up in the air tall and narrow like corn or sorghum but then what grows at the bottom layer that that kind of spreads out and has more surface more, mass, like more ground cover, clover and soybeans, like those things grow together. Well, weird. The soybeans grow up the corn stalk. 
Why? Well, a bean wants something to reach out, grab onto and grow up. Well, those things don't work together, right? They work real well. Especially because the bean is a nitrogen fixer and the corn is a nitrogen eater. So you literally have one plant feeding another plant. And that's, you know, that's the beauty of a system. And that's when I was talking earlier about how a certain percentage of our population are consumers and a certain percentage are producers. Every system has a balance of producers and consumers, right? And again, everything that produces also has to consume something, right? There's no, there's no perfect system. You have to have input before you can have output. Right now with our society, we're at this point where we have significantly more consumers than we have producers and that doesn't work in systems that, you know, that, that doesn't work in a sustainable natural system. And no matter how much we want to fight it and, and say that we can build this or invent this or print this, we're part of nature. And if we don't obey the balance of those natural systems and give back as much as we take the clock's ticking. I mean, it, it, it's, it makes so much sense. It's just hundred percent logic, right? It's like, it might not be in this generation, might not be in the next generation, might not even be in the generation after that. But if we are part of this system and we are taking more than we're giving back, the math does not line up. And the quality of life goes down as that pendulum swings or that those scales tip out of balance, right? The quality of life goes down. We're seeing it all over the world in the mass extinctions with issue with uh, different animal species and you know i'm not here i'm not here arguing climate crisis climate change global warming but we are without a shadow of a doubt dealing with some significant environmental issues due to the things that we as human beings are doing and most of it is well all of it really comes down to how we are utilizing the land because that land is that land has been cycling carbon on this planet for the, the entire eternity of this planet, for the entire life of this planet, in one way, shape, or form. There's been some mega, mega disruptors throughout the, the timeline, but that's what's cycling. Everything that has evolved over time is has evolved in this system of cycling nutrients, cycling carbon, and we have been taking and taking and taking from that system and not putting anything back, and that is where our issues are coming from would you i think yeah oh yeah i think and here's here's the easy way from that i like to say to people imagine a cake right if you left the earth alone that ca- the earth would automatically add layers to the cake and you'd end up with a 20 layer cake that you'd be able to cut into and eat at some point what we have been doing essentially is like we started with like 15 layers of that cake when we hopped on here and we started doing some crazy stuff to the ground to support our overpopulation and now we're stripping layers away. So we're sitting here with like th- a three-layer cake now. Well, we started with a 15. We looked up all the way to the ceiling, this giant cake sitting here. And we've carved. We're all the way down to like where we're, we're getting to the point of no of no return. Where like at some point you get down to layer two and then layer one. And then there's no way. Because you have to think about it. Like it, it builds from below and builds from above. Right? Well, if there's nothing above. There's no There's nothing for the ground to build on then. So we are, we have taken that all away by not give just being simple. So it's like when people coin like sustainable agriculture, 
or we've beyond the point we can't really do sustainable anymore because we can't just break even we have to build back we have to regenerate and restore um and the big part of that is allowing the, the ground just to do what the ground does while we are still getting off the ground what we need can i <laughs> you just reminded me of something give me a second here i i gotta find this i i wrote down some notes i I saw this is news. I think it might've been 60 minutes. Was it 60 minutes? Anderson Cooper or some shit uh, interviewing Bill Gates on climate change and mm. the, the hypocrisy of his mindset where, you know, he's, he's everything that he does humanitarian wise, he claims is in the name of, of, climate change or or saving the world in the face of climate change. And, Mm -hmm. but yeah, he's, he's flying all over the world in his private jet and all the things that he's doing, but he says that he offsets those things where, uh, you know, he's, uh, I disagree. I think, I think he's a, the only thing that I've ever heard him say that's good is that he says that we're overpopulated, which I agree with. We are. I I 100% agree. That's, that's a whole, that's probably a whole nother podcast to talk about that because people need to understand there is a carrying capacity of this world with every single wildlife population there's a carrying capacity it is unrealistic to think that we can keep growing and growing and growing as a population and maintain the same quality of life or even have a future ahead of us if we keep growing i mean if you look at nature every single population in nature once it becomes overpopulated nature either resets it or dramatically knocks it back and you know i'm not saying that well i'm just gonna leave it at that (laughs) but well that that is also the most simplistic version that is the most simplistic version on how we can fix farming too because rule number one should be what can this ground maintain yes yes what while also giving back what can we do and not just taking stripping 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 Right, because yeah. each 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 farm has a carrying capacity for the amount of animals that can stay on that farm. Same thing we we talk about with you know you can talk about it with deer hunting too, is when those deer populations get way over over what the carrying capacity is for that area, antler size shrinks down, overall health of the deer herds shrinks down, and then all of a sudden either a disease or some type of natural thing evens the playing field. Absolutely, I mean, and that's why. You know, the CWD thing really bothers me with how the outdoor community in general has reacted to it, where you have this this divide of people that are following the science, following what people are saying, taking precautions, and but still moving forward. I, I don't actually think there's been a, a huge ick factor involved with CWD. Most hunters keep hunting, and I test my deer just because if I can get quality data, I'm going to get quality data. You know, it, to me, it's like, I'm just going to keep killing deer and testing deer. And if I have a CWD positive, it's not going to be the end of the world to me. But if I, you know, if myself and my neighbors kill 10 deer a year, 20 deer a year, and we test them all, if we never have a positive, that's best case scenario. If we have a couple positives, but we always just have a couple positives, you know, say we have 20% of the deer tested every year, come back positive, but for 10 years, it stays at 20%. Then we know it's there, but we know it's not spreading and it's not as much of an issue as 
potentially still an issue, but not as big of an issue as, you know, the sky is falling mentality that some people had. But if we don't test at all, and if we're just ignorant, that's, you know, there's a huge population of people in this industry that either just put on the tinfoil hat with, with CWD or just ignore it altogether and don't ever address it. That's a bigger problem because, you know, you, you can't deny it and, until it becomes a very, very serious issue. But to your point, from a biological standpoint, we are we are exposing our deer to significant diseases the way that we are managing our herds the way that we were managing properties would what you're saying you know, we're pushing it far beyond the carrying capacity by providing all this food during certain times of the year not necessarily enough cover but also any form of management practice that is trying to concentrate deer in certain areas very consistently can have that potential of disease transmission, right? Food plots aren't nearly as bad, especially if they have healthy soil, because we know through science and research that healthy soil breaks down a lot of pathogens and a lot of the bad stuff, but concentrating them in even smaller areas, feeding them piles of corn, mineral sites. I'm not saying that that's how CWD is being transmitted. I'm just saying that if there was a easily transmittable, communicable disease circulating through our whitetail population, it would be very easy for it to spread just beyond the normal biological activity of a deer, you know, making scrapes, peeing in scrapes, licking up pee from other deer and scrapes, stuff like that. We're still setting them up because we're pushing that carrying capacity. So it's unrealistic. We're managing our hunting properties at unrealistic carrying capacities, which inevitably hurts the quality of the deer, which is why we're really truly managing the properties, right? People manage because they want a trophy experience. They want the highest caliber of animal possible, which, you know, gets a bad name or bad reputation in the non-hunting public because we're managing for trophies. But really, to me anyway, that trophy class animal is a product of a trophy class native ecosystem, right? You have a healthy, super healthy native ecosystem. You have an abundance of wildlife and white-tailed deer are native wildlife to our area and they will thrive in those situations. So, you know, it's very, very possible to manage your property for big deer and healthy deer, but not put them in a position where they're vulnerable to disease. And it's, actually, came, it's, it's, it's literally the same thing. Like if I'm grazing cattle and if they are getting too far ahead of where they need to be, because I just don't have enough ground for them, whether it's because there's a drought or if I overestimated the amount that can be fit in a certain area, you manage them by taking them out. Yeah, absolutely. So that absolutely, you know, either, if, either have to increase your pasture size or reduce your herd size. And yeah. obviously there's no, yeah. there's no in between. There's not like I can go stick a trough out there with corn and we'll just make do. Well, some people do that and that doesn't work. Right. Yeah. Well, right. And that's the yeah, thing. It's, it's just, like, it's just letting the ground speak to you and the animal speak to you. So basically what you're saying is <clears throat> a lot of hunters are managing their deer herd. Like they manage a beef herd, neither of which are healthy for the beef nor the deer. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, I, I, 
I get it. Like the math becomes much simpler. If you can just say, I can have this many animals. I feed them this thing. Yeah. It costs me this um, much to dump feed in there. And I, yeah, I know yeah. it absolutely does. Even absolutely though it's not, pro- even though it's not very profitable, it's simple math. Whereas, whereas like, you know, what is, what is, uh, you know, one eighth of an acre, what's the square footage and how much of that, how long does it take for five cattle to consume that area? And then what is, what is, uh, overgrazing or what is, what is not grazing it enough? What's not enough disturbance? Yeah. Um, you know, what's, what's too short of a period of rest? What's too long of a period of rest? What's, what does no rest do? What does no rest look like? And what does that do to the ground? It's, uh, well, no rest and too much rest are equally well i shouldn't say equal but they both I would have take too impacts. much but yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah they both yeah. <laughs> they both they both are negative like like okay cuz we're talking about the succession stage of you know infancy right like grass and pastures are just the beginning of the first successional stage i believe in those systems for them to be thriving at the most um abundance is if we are setting them back consistently consistently but not constantly well and and when you're talking about a wildlife property wildlife you know there's obviously certain types of wildlife that have niches in in a more mature forest stands and whatnot but most of the wildlife that we pursue white-tailed deer specifically uh, but also uh, you know turkeys and any animal you're trapping even songbirds, you know, we're pursuing them uh, just for aesthetics and, you know, bird watching stuff like that. Uh, all that wildlife that we pay the most attention to thrives on early succession as well. And, and some type of regeneration. Yeah. So that, you know, that's an obstacle and an issue that I see with the outdoor community and how they're managing their, their habitat right now is, you know, if, if you don't have a plan, you can't, you can't just uh, mechanically reset the regeneration time and time again without some issues because your your nutrient cycling isn't in sync with your your carbon breakdown your carbon cycling right so we're like when you run it through an animal that's that's the best case scenario that's how things really evolve so rapidly that's how you build that soil a cow eats a blade of grass processes it turns a fair amount of it into protein turns most of the rest of it into fertilizer and a little bit of it goes up in the air and that gets cycled back through the system. Well, the, the most important thing is you're allowing the environment underneath the ground to continue to grow. Correct. So when a cow comes up and nails a piece of grass at the right time, when it's just before it gets fully mature, that sends down sensors to the root uh, that say, hey, we're injured up here. We got an issue. We need to, we have got to start putting some more energy to regrow up here. And the root's like, okay, I'm going to go crazy. And it's it's growing down into the soil further. I mean, the, the most awesome thing about grass is how deep those soil, ta- those tap roots go. And that's what holds our ground together, right? That's what's so awesome about grass. What's awesome about perennial forage. Um, but if that animal was constantly hammering that plant, boom, 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 boom. It messes up the communication between the top of the plant to the root system. Yeah, um, that's why we, well, you know, we it time never it. allows never allows that plant to really do. It doesn't recover much. Yeah. Well, it doesn't it, like when that plant's recovering and the roots are sending all this energy up for that plant to regrow. 
that's the magic. That's what's awesome. That's where you that's where you hear about the soil communicating with each other and where we have all the biology taking place into the ground. Um, and then on top of that, having the actual mass on top of the ground, which is then going to feed the cattle the next time they're through. And the the essential part of the system we're talking about is the cattle, right? It is a large animal. Any ruminant. Any, any ruminant. ruminant animal, but but larger animals cover more ground to, yeah. you know, and they're more controllable in this type of system as well, right? You're not waiting for them to graze through an area like a herd of buffalo. You're timing things perfectly. Do you know, this is kind of off topic, but well, actually not off topic, but uh, you know what they're, uh, within the next couple of years, they will be reintroducing woolly mammoth into Siberia. They've successfully no, is that possible? cloned. They've successfully. Oh, okay. The uh, Asian elephant is genetically, it is like 99% identical to the woolly mammoth. And they found like frozen blood in permafrost that they, you know, multiple different subspecies of woolly mammoth or what are they, Pleistocene? Is that, is that the actual name of them? Let me Google that. You're shit. the biology major. Yeah, if and you and you guys will realize it when you listen to more of these. Like, I am actually obsessed with cattle. I think they are the greatest thing to ever be placed on this earth. Um, they they absolutely work perfectly with the earth, um, and they also work perfectly with our bodies as well. And they are the managers of land. Like my big push this year, um, and what I'd love to see is is we get to where we have contract grazing as part of a CRP program. Cause in the CRP guidelines and bylaws, whatever you want to call them, um, they don't allow grazing, which is a mistake. They don't allow it all the time. I think it's like every other year or something. Every um, three years, once every three years, is it every three. Yeah. That's, that's ridiculous. Yeah. It's stupid. Um, but to issue... my last dying day, I'm going to get that changed to at least allow it once a year. Well, I'll, I'll work with you on that because I've actually put some feelers out there too. I mean, there's there's a few things in our government programs that need to be readdressed, and I feel like, again, like we we need to start turning things around one way, shape, or form. And you know, I, I guess the listener doesn't have to worry about this stuff if guys like mm-hmm. you and I are worrying about this stuff, but <laughs> they should be able to understand or be educated on why we want to make those changes, but I need to take a leak. So let's, uh, let's pause this for a second. <clears throat> All right. Sorry about that. I'm trying really hard to drink a lot more water these days. It's, uh, it's the hardest. Why, you weren't doing that well with water. Like how many, like how many, I'm, how much are you trying to drink a day? Well, my problem is I, I during hunting season specifically, I I get myself kind of conditioned. I condition myself to take my shits really early in the morning, and I condition myself to not drink a ton of water during the day because then if I'm out in the woods, I have to pee all the time, and also can't you know I don't want to carry gallons of water with me out in the woods yeah. to begin with. So I mean I'll I sat I don't I don't even remember now probably ten or fifteen all day sits this fall and you know a lot of a lot of it just came down to the fact that i've got poor access issues in some of the the better pinch points on the farm 
So I, I would slip in there and, you know, maybe, maybe it wouldn't be the best spot for a morning hunt, but it would be a really good evening spot on that particular day. But I couldn't get in there in the afternoon because the doe's bed so close and there's no, not good way to get in there. So I just go in and set up all day. But anyway, I got myself to where I wasn't drinking a ton of water. And, and then when I combine that with being active, you know, now I'm out walking properties and cold or at home. Actually, the worst is when I'm at home and I'm staring at a computer screen all day. I get just wicked headaches if I don't drink enough water. But it's hard to, I really got a pound of water. So I set a whole pitcher of water. And I just nice. <laughs> fill that thing up, try and do two of them a day. But I've been trying to drink five of these. Yeah, that's no, that's good. <clears throat> 32 ounce, whatever, like 100 and some ounces. But yeah. No, well, that's good. So what were we talking about? Um, yeah, I mean, large animals on the landscape is essential. And, you know, I guess to kind of try and bring this thing back around and wrap it up so that it's not too terribly long, though I do feel like, I, th- I feel like we're probably never going to hit that target length unless we are just sick of talking to each other or talking in general. But, I mean, just to kind of bring that back around, you know, having large animals on the landscape as part of this nutrient cycling system is what nature perfected. You know, that was the system that nature perfected. I have this conversation with my clients all the time. Uh, You know, I basically, the way I see it is since, since humans, you could argue since humans were introduced into North America, the soil conditions have been degrading steadily. Uh, But, obviously at a, a significantly accelerated rate once white settlers hit the Americas and removed the last of the true megafauna from the landscape, that being the buffalo. Uh, you know, prior to that, there were tons of large animals that that grazed across the landscape. And woolly mammoths, you know, one of the reasons why they want to introduce those woolly mammoths back. And this is a real thing. Uh, you should look it up. It's actually incredibly fascinating. Uh, I really like it because I have young kids and my five-year-old son's at that stage in life where dinosaurs and everything extinct is super, super cool. And I hope he stays that way forever. That's how I am. I mean, I was obsessed with dinosaurs when I was a kid. But uh, Pleistocene Park, I think is the name of it. And they've successfully cloned blood or used blood from frozen woolly mammoths clone them with Asian elephants. And I think they have a fetus in utero right now in an elephant, but the gestation period for elephants and woolly mammoths is 24 months. So it'll take I was two gonna years. Say it's super long, born. right? Yeah. But their goal, I forget what the target date is, but their goal is to have 600,000 of these things roaming the tundra in Siberia because they I mean, they've been doing studies up there as of late uh, with, I think, buffalo and and maybe cattle or smaller large hooved animals and showing how the impact of having those animals on the landscape is building the soil back from being tundra, which is not really sustaining productive vegetation, uh, building it back into grasslands and, and woolly mammoths and elephants in Africa are the same way. Uh, you know, so woolly mammoths, I forget now, multiple subspecies throughout the world, but, you know, a 
they were very prevalent in North America, which would essentially be you know the same as an elephant in North America, but they have hair, excuse me, they have hair that keeps them warm and longer tusks that allow them to dig through snow and, and whatever they need to dig through to, to get the food that they eat. But on the landscape, they play a valuable role because they, when they move through these landscapes, certain times they just bulldoze trees over with their head and create disturbance, open up oh, the canopy. Really? Yeah. So they, they're an essential part of Are they of that. ruminants? And they are, I believe. Yeah, they they're I, I don't know i i'm excited because when when you can turn to your five-year-old son who's fascinated with that type of animal or with with animals in general i mean i guess he's only five so he hasn't really understood the fact that you know how long the timeline of events actually is you know ten thousand years ago these animals were removed from the planet but when you can look at him and be like hey in our lifetime we are probably going to get to see a woolly mammoth in person. I mean, that, well, that's first. So for how long ago was it? Were they extinct? 10,000? I, I think so. I mean, I, yeah, that's, that's crazy. That's crazy. That means that there isn't even. Yeah. That is crazy. Yeah, it's insane. How long ago did they go and extinct? And they went extinct from hunting, right? Or do they go extinct from an event? Did they go extinct from the 10,000 a year ago thing? Like there the, was some, there was that, like an event 10,000 years ago. Yeah, that, that like potential meteorite or meteor that hit that, uh, what is that though? Yeah, somebody was on Rogan's podcast recently and they were discussing that, but they were discuss- they were essentially putting a case in on how they believe the start of humans became were much earlier than what yeah. we believe they are. Oh, the, the uh, Graham Hancock was talking about that, right? Yep. Yeah, the Younger Dryas period or something, I think is what they call it, but or I, I could be completely off on that. But uh, yeah, they, they I, I think their best theory is that when the climate shifted dramatically due to this event, the mammoths just didn't have enough food. That was a big part mm-hmm. of it. But, uh, you know, people hunted them. I don't think that, you know, that's a pretty big animal to take down with primitive weapons. So I think it would take a lot of hunting to to overhunt them, obviously. But, yeah, there was a lot, a lot that happened during that last event, which is super cool that these guys are digging up that information. Now, there's been a lot of information coming out that – goes against all of the previous recorded events or you know previous theories that these uh archaeologists and everything have come up with and and they're fascinating and you know it that's science right we have better technology better satellite imagery we can get whole new perspectives on on things now and we can drill deeper we can test down to more details for you know different elements and stuff i mean it's insane to me when they can go uh, take a rock sample up in these mountains and find evidence that there was sea life there at one point in time you know and not saying that that mountain was below well it would have been yeah saying that it would have been below sea level at one point and then you know obviously the topography changed the plates shift and mountains get bigger and smaller stuff like that but it's just crazy what we can test for now. So, you know, there's a lot. Again, I just feel like 
and I, I don't know. I like I, I always hit this this point where I often overthink things, but it's like, are we are we just at a point in our lives, like maturity wise, where we're more aware of the things around us and more aware of things around the world, or are we at a point as a society or this generation specifically where a lot of these truths are being exposed and a lot of previous truths are now being challenged. And that's where, you know, like all this stuff with history, you know, Graham Hancock's a perfect example. A lot of archeologists hate him because his theories are completely different from what the mainstream theory has been forever with, you know, when the human civilizations that we know, you know, started essentially or how how far back they actually date and he's talking thousands you know hundreds of tens of thousands of years earlier than what was previously anticipated but uh it's the same thing with our food systems right all the truths are coming out you know it's not it's not good for you to eat this or that that's been pushed by these companies and corporations and government for how long you well know, as far the, as the, the realizing like what um, I think our generation is the first generation to see the ramifications of the food production model that, you know, got started back in the um, industrial era. Well, we're not so like, we're not just seeing it. We're, 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 we're experiencing like, it, right? Yeah. We're, yeah, we're, we're taking it on way harder than our generation above us. Uh, you know, the biggest thing with the food industry is it changed in the 40s and 50s whenever the industrial age started where they needed to feed more mouths and more people need the um, online and create, you know, cars and create, you know, whatever goods and services and less people, more people left the farm and technology came. And then we started, you know, mass producing food because I think the population from like 1920 to like 1960, like four X in the world or something. Um, and we can get better numbers on that. But when that stuff started happening, when technology got to the point where we were mass producing food with chemicals and with uh, machinery, that then started getting ran through our grandparents and then our parents and then us. Um, you know, now they're seeing with herbicide and all the other chemicals that these types of things get embedded into us. And then as we move down a generation, they become more severe. So Correct. that's why our generation is dealing with more, uh, you know, gluten intolerance. We're dealing with more. Here's a th- here. I guess here's a theory, and I I support this theory. Um, more autism, more just medication. Not to mention that as a whole and as a generation, we're being medicated more than we were before. Um, so I think yes, I think this is a generation that has to stop things from the down. Essentially, like a snowball rolling downhill. That's not going to stop. Um, and I don't necessarily blame our parents. I don't necessarily blame our grandparents. They didn't have the same reactions to these things that we are having. And what we're seeing, you talk to people our age who have kids when they're five years old and they have severe gluten intolerances where they're puking and they can't even ingest that food or they have cancer. That's not. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I haven't gone down the cancer. It's more, but it's all, it's all related. You know, it's all. Yes. And and, uh, cancer is, (laughs) you know, I mean, not to oversimplify it, but oftentimes it's an intolerance to certain chemicals, right? Those That intolerance to the chemicals in your body creates some reaction within your body that is negative. You know, it creates a growth in your body that is negative and that's reacting to certain levels of chemicals. And some people react to them differently than other people. Some people store 
certain types of chemicals in their body more so than other people. But you know, it's not their fault. It is not, you know, it's not the generation above us. It's not their fault that we're in this position. It's the fault of a handful of individuals, you know, it, the companies that pushed it. Because I think about this all the time. You know, the current agricultural practices are very clearly not beneficial to the future of our planet. Very clearly, without a mm-hmm. shadow of a doubt. It, I mean, if you if you can realistically look at how most land is farmed where there's 100% synthetic inputs and and outputs that's it right there's no nutrient cycling everything's mechanized everything's chemicals herbicides fungicides pesticides all these biocides all these poisons you're literally dumping poisons on top of your food to farm it right how how is that in any way shape or form beneficial to the planet that we know without a shadow of a doubt that the soil the healthy soil is living soil and you're killing it all the time so how can you look at that and say that's beneficial you can't but it's not the farmer's fault it's these big companies that that profited and are still profiting off of all these chemicals because they're the ones that train the farmers at the end of the day right it's like if you're a farmer working your ass off to to produce commodities when someone comes along and says hey i can save you a ton of time and ensure that you're gonna have this crop turn out this way all you have to do is spray this shit on it yeah of course you're gonna do that right you know i think we especially in this country as americans should have a reasonable expectation to trust the government agencies that are overseeing the health and safety of our population. But if anything has been more obvious and completely opposite of that, it's the last two years of our lives when the government can just blatantly lie about shit and these different three letter organizations can verify or allow or recommend or certify shit that we know is absolutely not good for us. I mean, how how are you supposed to trust those people? But again, it's not our it's not our parents' fault. They just were led down this path and now well, and our, think about think about how they consumed information. All of their information they had consumed was curated and controlled. Correct. Whereas now with technology, we have the ability to go search for answers. And it goes both ways. You have the ability to go find some crazy ass ideas too that are not right. But that, also, absolutely, that's why we need. We just need more people to use common sense, and then um, you know, like look at you know, look more in depth at topics. And Ask not questions. Just Ask yeah. questions. You know, that's that's. I've lived my life that way. I mean, everything that I've ever been successful in, or over came some sort of obstacle that was challenging to be successful at something came through asking questions and figuring out answers. The information that we consume is a perfect example of that. And it probably, you know, that it's what's pushed down your throat. A lot of times is not usually the best thing. And that's why I, yeah. I personally don't follow much or any content consistently. Like, you know, if, if someone's just like cramming stuff down your information pie hole right <laughs> like they're they're pushing all this information on you daily free information then you're the product right so they're doing that to persuade you to do one thing or another now sometimes a lot of times it's not negative at all right they're 
educating you on a product or a service or something that's beneficial to you. And they're doing that because they've created this product or service to be, a, you know, again, a benefit to you and the world in general. But there are a lot of companies out there, unfortunately. There's a lot of products out there, unfortunately, that are not good for you. They're not good for the environment. Mm -hmm. They're just highly profitable to produce. And then they convince you that you should buy them and use them. And it's just kind of a a downward spiral from there. But again, it's it's not their fault, but man, it's a, we've got a lot of ground to make up at this point. You know, the, the yeah, research. Yeah, we do. All the we information do, that's out it's... there though is valuable. And again, we just got to get more people to think about it first and foremost. And that's why we're here having this conversation today, hoping that we can reach five or six people. <laughs> just just to make people aware. Like, Here's one thing I never even, even got close to understanding before I started learning about this stuff. It's like, if you think of soil as a living human, living, breathing um, specimen or uh, animal or whatever, would you ever go take a cow, lay it down and just drag a disc or spray it full of a burning chemical to reset it or to do something to it? Well, and you I don't say think that anybody would. You say that I mean, some people and, would, but and what? There's more living organisms in the top two inches of of soil than there is in the entire planet combined. Well, ninety eight percent of the living organisms are in the top two inches of the soil. Yeah, and we have how much of our country right now is covered? Right now, we're 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 nearing the end of January. So, what percentage of our country right now? is full of dead, sterile, lifeless soil. Right now, it's a significant amount. And that that's oh, actually, that's, yeah. what, that's, that's what I was getting at. Uh, and then I kind of got sidetracked. But <clears throat> when I saw that interview with Anderson Cooper and Bill Gates calling him out as a hypocrite on climate change, and then uh, uh, Bill Gates goes on to say that he's offsetting his, his carbon footprint by spending lots of money on biofuels for his jet and supporting this company that's creating these machines that can pull carbon out of air, extract carbon from air, and inject it into the ground. And I, my first thought was like, this right here sums up why we are where we are today. People with money and influence to go hand in hand are just pushing narratives that are going to benefit them financially and not benefit the planet. It's like, you're talking about inventing or supporting a company that's inventing a machine and a system that can pull carbon from the air and put it in the ground. <clears throat> I say that again. You're inventing a machine that can pull carbon from the air and put it in the ground. What the fuck are we doing? That's what plants are for. That's what trees are for. That's what shrubs are for. They're pulling carbon from the air. They're putting it in the ground. And then we're cycling it with the cattle and we're producing food. So I was, I, I saw that and I was just like, man, is it? This this is very telling. Well, right? Bill Bill Gates is the exact <clears throat> example of number one, a lunatic, but he is he is essentially 
piece of everything, right? So yeah. he knows that buying land is a smart investment. He's the, like the top landowner in the world. <clears throat> He's He could choose to do good things with that land. He is not. He's choosing to do monoculture, food production. His excuse, I need to feed the world. Okay, fine. Here's my theory. Those people... They take advantage of owning the land. So he's taking advantage of owning the land. He's taking the financial advantage of that. He's taking the financial advantage of the food product being created. He, I'm sure he owns a piece of where that food is going and how oh. it's sold. He gets a chunk of that. And then guess what? He also sells vaccines and medicines. Well, weird. Who needs more vaccines, medicines, and just general help? The people who ate the food that you just created. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's like... Here's the funny thing. So I, I jotted this down. This isn't isn't complete because I I was just curious. I mean, this was literally like a four o'clock on Sunday morning adventure, but uh, I did just rough math on this. So Bill Gates currently is the largest owner of farmland in our country at, at sitting at the most recent number I could find is right around 270,000 acres of farmland. And we we know we can reasonably assume that he's conventionally farming that, right? Because he wants everything mechanized, monoculture. 100%. He's not even doing is, organic. Is it, Yeah, no, not at all. I mean, I, I'd be surprised if there's but a handful of humans even involved in his operations, right? Everything is GPS-driven as much as possible. And if not now, in the future, that is his plan, without a shadow of a doubt. Everything will be mechanized, ran as, efficiency as, poss- as, as efficiently as possible. So monoculture sterilized environment, zero biodiversity, zero biodiversity, 100% monoculture, sterile soil, right? When you look at the math on that, okay, again, we're talking about a guy who's boasting that he's supporting the invention of a machine that can pull carbon from the air. Direct air extraction, direct air capture is the, the technical term for that. So if you look at the average organic matter in soil for conventionally farmed cropland, it, it sits at right around one percent, two to three percent, two to three percent. And uh, I actually I, I went back and I looked at some some soil samples from a couple of farms that I was on in Missouri this last year that were really bad, like really really bad cropland. And you know these thankfully. My clients purchased them and we're converting them back into native wildlife habitat, but it's going to take some time because the soil is so depleted, right? But the the average organic matter in conventionally farmed soil is sitting at right around 2 to 3%. Now, Gabe Brown took his farm from just under 2% to 6% organic matter in, I think, like, what, 20 years? And he's out in North yeah. Dakota, and he did that through regenerative practices, cover cropping, perennial plants, uh, perennial pastures and cattle running while, cattle while still being while still being a pretty big crop farmer yeah he, in, fact, in fact his yields were county average or county highs right he was he had the highest yeah, yield he was production. above county average correct so that's four percent increase we'll just say roughly four percent increase now if you do the math on that a a one percent increase of organic matter on one acre of land equates to 18.35 metric tons of carbon pulled from the air. That's where it came from, right? Pulled from the air, put into the ground by nature's invention of a plant, not a machine. 
if you look at the, I forget now if I found where are my notes here. Oh, this is here it is. So right now, the latest, at least what I could find, and again, bear in mind this was 15 minutes on Google. It wasn't extensive research. But the 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 latest article I could find on direct air capture, i.e. the the machines that Bill Gates is promoting and supporting. The latest information I could find was that one of these machines, the most productive machine currently out there, can remove, get this, 0.01 metric ton of carbon per year. <laughs> Do you, you understand what I'm saying? So take a 1% increase oh. of organic matter on all the farmland that Bill Gates owns, if he were to switch today, if Bill Gates called me today and we put together, I'm saying we because 270,000 acres is a lot, so I would I would subcontract you to help me with this, Taylor. Uh, but if we put together a long-term plan for his property to farm this in a more regenerative way, he could still cash crop it, right? He, he could cash crop it on a rotational cycle, uh, you wouldn't be getting the same yields annually. You would, but you know, across a broad spectrum, you would have to to rotate your land, especially at the current state it's in. But if you were to increase, well, I, I didn't. This is where my math ended. But if you take eighteen, what's eighteen times two hundred and seventy thousand? You don't have to do the math on that to understand that it's a fucking lot, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that's that's a one percent increase. So if he increased that by four percent over the the next ten to twenty years by following regenerative practices on soil health, that's a lot more carbon than what you're going to pull from the air with a machine that also requires carbon and energy to produce and also requires carbon and energy to operate. And then it also creates these hunks of carbon that are unusable by anything within the ecosystem once they're injected back in the ground. So again... <laughs> back that back up to a more reasonable method of extracting carbon from the environment, putting it into the ground. You could do that with cattle and the byproduct of that would be food, good, clean, healthy food for the American population. Well, what are you going to use to poison everybody with? Correct. I mean, at that point, I mean, you, you got it. The That's snake. the problem. Look at, look at the, look at the, look at the business model. It's not only enough to monetize the front end product. You have got to slam the door shut and really hammer down monetization on the back end. And in order for that back end product, the medicine and the vaccines to really do well, you need to make sure the front end product is making people sick. I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's the oldest lesson in business in the world. Make oh, sure your front, end, your front end product is cheap, easy to give away, and it doesn't fully solve the main issue. Or in their situation, it's directly causing the issue that will then solve the most monetization and the most profitable product they have on the back end. It's just these guys can wait 30, 40 years. Yeah. Well. No, that's, that's, that is absolutely insane. And, and the thing with Gabe Brown's place, too, in North Dakota is those numbers have even if, – if, if people are doing that in actual, like, the considered, like, I don't know, with like the agricultural belt where we have the best and most fertile soils in the country, those those results are quicker and you even get to where people are having like 10% organic Correct. matter. 
because the the climate allows that carbon to yeah. cycle significantly faster. Yeah, absolutely. yeah. I mean, he's 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 doing that in like the worst. I mean, North Dakota would not be a fun place to farm. No, it just wouldn't. I mean, no. Wisconsin is a pretty you know Southwest Wisconsin here is a great place. Southern Wisconsin is a great place, really, as long as you stay out of the pine belt or the pine forest and stuff. Um, but you, you go around to Iowa, Iowa, Missouri, those places and, and do things like this, the results are even better. Yeah. So that puts that into perspective, right? It's like, that's crazy. It, when you have a guy who, a philanthropist. Because he could, he could be working on making a tool that would measure carbon. Yeah. Significantly faster. That's the, that's the big thing we're missing with for farmers now. It's like if we could incentivize farmers to, and we had a tool to to measure the amount of carbon being sequestered into the soil, and all of a sudden the government could do what the government does essentially and run how agricultural practices are are being done and say, hey, we are actually going to pay farmers who are doing things responsibly and sequestering carbon because we have this tool. Yeah. No, I, that's the thing that's I, missing right now. I think that's where we need to go, right? It's well, not it's, about it's happening. Like people are working on it, but it's just if you had Bill Gates who can just poof make a make a carbon sequester machine out of nowhere, if he'd have just spent that energy on a, a measuring tool, which would then yeah. incentivize people to do things a different way. Not to mention the government always wants to subsidize stuff. That would be a great thing to subsidize. Yeah. Could you imagine if we were subsidizing carbon sequestration well, instead why of we? Why would we do that when we can promote corn and and beans to be grown? With well, at shit some ton of point we do. At some point, even these freaks need to realize that there needs to be an earth that can be even lived on. At some point, well, but they also, you know, it's the instant gratification. We're gonna get really, really rich while we're on this earth. Yeah. And... No, it's it's depressing. So I guess we can. It's... And I will say this note. in a more positive <laughs> note, these things are changing for the better. My whole world is encompassed with this type of work and people that are getting into this and people who are discovering it at all times, this podcast will help, but it, there is uh positive things happening and we are not to the point of no return. We are moving that direction. Um, Correct. But I mean, we're not to that point. So there's so much that can be done. And that's, you know, again, that's why with my business, like I, you know, I primarily work with recreational properties and hunters and managing that land. And and the big reason for that is that, you know, those are people that are open to land management because they want to benefit from it with on the wildlife side of things. Right. And then I expose them to all this other information on how they could manage their land for not just more profit down the road, but also better improvement or, you know, improve that land for future generations, better practices that are more sustainable, but they're not the only people that have a role in this. And farmers aren't the only ones that have a, a role or a stake in this. You know, the, every single homeowner that has a lawn could be, could be doing more to put more carbon in the ground, could be doing more to produce more food, could be doing more to keep more chemicals and impurities out of the natural ecosystems, out of your water, out of the air, all these things, you know, all these issues that we come across are, they're broad scale. You know, it's not just this or that, you know, for, for someone to sit at home and bitch about farmers, 
or complain about hunters killing wildlife or whatever they're complaining about, but then they go mow a big yard and put a bird feeder out and they think that their contribution to nature is feeding birds a bunch of corn or seed that were farmed by the very farmers that they're complaining about in a monoculture and they're sprayed with with the same chemicals and then you bring them to your bird feeder. I mean, I, I've never seen organic bird feed advertised. I'm sure you could buy it, but it's not something that's popular. But that's despite what I'm trying to say. What I'm trying to say is just, you know, we can all do better. Right. So yeah, we can. I think, I, I think, I think we need to wrap up. Uh, but you know, I, I want to leave everyone with a, a weekly tip, you know, and again, the purpose of this, this podcast is to have these conversations and, and try and provoke some thought and kind of share our perspective and the things that we're seeing in the world, uh, in, you know, in our professions, because this is what we're doing from a career standpoint. But there's a lot of things, you know, I made a big change in my life years ago um, and it was dramatically amplified when I had kids because I just started to look at everything, every aspect, of, <clears throat> excuse me, every aspect of my life and make sure that I was doing the best thing that I possibly could for my kids instead of, you know, feeding them something that you're going to find out is terrible for them down the road, teaching them to do, you know, teaching them a mindset or or work ethic or anything that's not going to be productive for them in the future. I started really digging into that stuff. So yeah, what I want to do with these podcasts is every week, I just want to share one tip from me personally, uh, something that you can work on to improve, you know, your life to improve the planet. And, you know, the reality is if, if you want to save the world, you have to start at home, right? You have to start with yourself and the things that you're doing, start with your family uh, branch out to your yard, to your community, to your local government, everything, right? But you got to start small. So before you go out and start putting signs together to picket some bill that was passed or whatever it might be, you got to look at the things that you're doing. So my tip you know, this week is on the food topic and it's up to this generation to get this thing turned around. You know, Taylor, you just said we're not at the point of no return. I would add yet to the end of that sentence. The, mm -hmm. We will reach a point where we are at the point of no return. So we need to turn it around before it gets that far, right? And I think the biggest thing is shifting the mindsets of this next generation, i.e. Our, our children. But more importantly is waking up to this shit before it's too late for our kids, before we have even higher increase in obesity and all these diseases that never really existed until just a handful of years ago and cancers and all that stuff, right? Like we don't want to see this next generation deal with all that stuff. We want to put them in the best position possible. So with this food thing, you know, we got to turn this around and how do we turn this around? The power lies with the money how the people spend their money. You don't have to be rich to have that power, right? It's what you're buying on a daily basis, what you're consuming, what you're putting in the fridge for your family to consume. Your money dictates where this food comes from. And there's a lot of options out there now. And that's the the beauty of living in a free country in the society that we have. Uh, though flawed, obviously very flawed, we still have options. It just comes down to money. So, my tip right now is spend your money 
on food that's worth spending money on, plain and simple. You know, I, I get it. Times are tough right now. A lot of people are strapped for cash, but there's never been a better time to hunker down and focus on the essentials. And the most essential thing in your life is your food. And honestly, food should be expensive. It should be expensive. You shouldn't be budgeting your life around your cell phone bill or your Netflix bill or whatever screen you're spending time staring at. You should budget around your future and your future is the food that you're eating, the food that you're putting in your body. And when you support people that farm in ways that are healthy for the planet, that that are also producing healthy food, the two are synonymous really, then you're supporting those industries and eventually they will take over the industries that are destroying the planet and producing shitty food. So again, food should be expensive. Support those companies and things are going to get better, but start small. You know, if you have a, a certain food item in your house that you consume a lot of, that's where I would start. Because one, if you're consuming a, a food item often, if it's a full of not so good stuff, then you're just consuming a lot more of that not so good stuff, right? So start with something and go from there. Cut your budget in other places. Don't cut your budget with your food. Yeah, I I mean, I couldn't have said that better myself. 